Uh, our scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 11. God's word says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are a God who has revealed himself to us and desires to make himself known to us. Not only that, but Lord God, in your steadfast love, at the nature of who you are, you entered into our mess with the gospel, the good news. That, Lord God, this is something of first importance for us here tonight. That, God, you have given us the gospel that we would receive it, that we would believe it. And that this gospel would unite us together in this room with all those who have received and believed the gospel throughout time and space. God, would you, would you be praised for what you have done for us in the gospel? God, would we know you rightly because of what you've given us in the scriptures? And God, would you help us as we look to be united in the gospel and let everything else find its proper place in terms of doctrine and differences? God, would you help us to handle those differences rightly tonight in love, love that we see modeled by our God? God, would you be worshiped tonight in spirit and in truth? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, thank you all so much for being here tonight. Um, uh, if you weren't here last week, I need to kind of catch you up a little bit. Uh, this has kind of been just a spontaneous two-part series, uh, and I kind of saw it becoming this as I was formulating it last week. Um, so last week, we looked at Psalm 133, uh, which is a psalm that talks all about unity. Um, it's actually three quick verses, um, and the first one is, uh, it says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And so we looked at that verse in particular, and then the, the following verses really just illustrate those, those words in that first verse of good and pleasant. And we saw that that unity that the Lord kind of commends us to, to have with one another is morally good, and it is, is experientially pleasant. Uh, it's morally good, like the, the oil coming down off of uh, Aaron, the high priest, who, makes, uh, who, who enters into the most holy place and offers atonement uh, on the mercy seat, right? It's good, morally good. 
but it's also pleasant. Like uh, the, the dew that is on Mount Hermon and, and flows down and provides vegetation and, and supplies people with things to, to eat and drink. It's pleasant. And, and that's good for us to know. And in fact, we, we saw that kind of explored in the New Testament um, in three different ways. And just to kind of review, we have these three points from last week, if you weren't with us. Uh, biblical unity, when we think about Psalm 133 and how it's lived out in the New Testament, what we see there in John 17, verses 20 through 23, it's this prayer, it's this high priestly prayer of Jesus where he's praying for the disciples, and then it turns, and, and he kind of thinks even more long-term than just the 12 disciples. He's thinking about the disciples who the disciples will make, and the disciples after them, and in fact, you as disciples of Jesus Christ. And in this prayer that Jesus, the second person of our triune God, communicates to the first person of our triune God, the Father, he says, Father, I pray that your disciples, the church, would be one as you and I are one. It's divinely inspired. Biblical unity is divinely inspired in that Jesus desires that for his church, the church he laid down his life for. It's divinely inspired, but it's also doctrinally rooted. We see that in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says this is something we got to approach with humility and gentleness, being one in the Spirit. And it's based on doctrine, because we believe in one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism, one gospel is what he's getting at. We believe one gospel. It's doctrinally rooted. And then it's deacon-supported, and I kind of sussed that out. It's servant-supported. Uh, we looked at the, the kind of the beginning of the office of deacon there. We see in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the church, in the midst of a conflict, imagine that, even at the beginning stages of the church, they had a problem, and they raise up godly men to handle that problem for the sake of unity in the church. So we see it's servant-supported. So this kind of catches you up on kind of where, what we've covered so far. Um, I don't want to enter into tonight where we're going to look at Christian differences without this kind of being the framework that I'm building upon. Because if you hear this sermon detached from these truths, you're going to think, wow, Pastor Cross is preaching a very divisive message on the, his way out. And I don't want you to think that. I'm preaching this because I want you to be able to handle the differences that will come as we see more and more Christians are being discipled digitally outside the church and bringing their beliefs that they've already formed into the church where not everybody's going to have viewed the things you've viewed. Not everybody's going to learn the things that you've learned. And so we need to kind of be able to figure out where everybody is. And, and so tonight's not going to be a normal sermon where I dive into a text and I expound the truth to you. I love preaching those sermons, but this is different from any other sermon I've ever preached because I want to give you practical tools for how do we handle these differences. They're, they're more of concepts, ideas, rather than any type of biblical principle. But believe me, there's going to be plenty of biblical passages we look at tonight. We could say, oh, let's just speak the truth in love and move on. But I, don't, I think that stops short of what the Lord actually calls us to do. And so tonight's sermon title is Christian Differences. And I want to help you answer that question. What do we do to handle these Christian differences? Let me pray for us. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would run to the gospel, see the unity we have in the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus Christ and him resurrected, that nothing else is more important than this, that which you call of first importance. But God, I do understand that there are things we see in the church today where we don't line up and there are disagreements. God, would you just help us to practically see where we can respect one another, love one another in the midst of this diversity? God, would you help us learn tonight? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight, I'd like to introduce you to the concept of triage. Now, I use that word. Many of you are nurses in this room, and you've, you know that word. You know that word, triage. You may have heard the word before. Over the last few centuries, a process has been developed, mostly attributed to times of war, where casualties would be taken off the battlefield after they've been injured, and they would be taken to a medical tent, and then they would just be treated as they came, like chronological order. Who came in first? You have a broken ankle? Okay, let's treat you. All right, second, you have a chest wound? Okay, let me help this guy with the broken ankle first, and then I'll get to you. And somewhere along the way, someone said, I don't know that that makes sense. Right? Somewhere along the way, someone started basing their, uh, the attention they required Uh, The need that was there, dangerously wounded soldiers would be treated first, regardless of their rank or their distinction. And those less severely injured could wait for treatment. Now it's ingrained in our modern medical practices. Medical personnel determine which patients need to be rushed into surgery and which ones can kind of wait patiently in the waiting room. They bear a responsibility to give the patients with the most critical needs top priority in terms of treatment. Okay, so what does that have to do with Christian differences? In 2005, uh, Dr. Al Mohler, uh, he's the president of the seminary that I attended uh, and got my Master's of Divinity from. Uh, In 2005, he wrote an article where he called on Christians to exhibit maturity through triaging theological issues. As with prioritizing particular injuries and illnesses in a hospital, there's a great need today for ranking theological issues in order of importance within the church. This is a concept I want to introduce to you tonight. It's called theological triage. It takes primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines and puts them in kind of their proper place in terms of importance. First level, second level, third level much in the same way you would in a hospital. Now, let's look at primary doctrine. Primary doctrine. This is first-level theological issues. These would include the doctrines most central and essential to our Christian faith. Included among these most crucial doctrines would be doctrines such as the Trinity, you see there, which would include the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. You see the gospel, which we would say is the justification by faith being declared righteous because you believe in the saving works of Jesus? And then the authority of Scripture. What do we believe about the Bible? Something that we covered in length a couple weeks ago. So let's start there with the gospel. Uh, you heard me in the Scripture reading. I quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. In this passage, I think we see uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, lay out for us what the gospel facts are. Right? And notice what he called. He says, For I delivered to you as of 
first importance. That's right. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. These are what I call the gospel facts. What must I believe in order to be saved? This is definitely included in that. But I think we can go even farther to, to say, what is the gospel truth? It's applying the gospel facts in our life. So that's where we would kind of include Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is, again, Paul writing. Okay, Paul, what's the gospel this time? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. When you apply the gospel facts that Jesus died and lived, rose from the grave, you apply that to your life, you're calling on the power of God that he has given us access to for our salvation. Salvation that we experience now, not just someday in eternity, now. That's important. How important? First importance. What about the Trinity? Well, the Trinity is balled up into this, right? I can't talk about the gospel without talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, we see this in Galatians. Paul can't keep from talking about it. It says in Galatians 4, 3 through 7, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were sinners, with a sinful nature, breaking God's laws. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Okay, pause. God, the father, sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's that talking about? Salvation. Let's keep going. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. That's the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit, so that we're crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's good news. That's good news. And it involves every person of our triune God. You've heard me explain it this way. God is one in essence, three in persons. That's language that has been handed down throughout history to explain the Trinity in ways that we understand it. One God, Three persons, working for our good and his glory. And then you have the Bible. And we talked about this uh, when we did the Sermon on the Mound out in front of the church. Some of you were here for that. Where we talked about the authority of Scripture, right? Scripture is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's sufficient. For what? For salvation. For Christian living. Where do we get that? Back to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture, how much of scripture? All of it, is breathed out by God. It's inspired and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How important is this? First importance. You see, we get the gospel. We get an understanding of the Trinity, an understanding of Jesus from the Bible. If we start picking and choosing the verses in Scripture that we like and just discarding the rest of it, we're picking our God. We can't do that. All of Scripture is authoritative to us. 
and we treasure it as a primary doctrine. What about secondary doctrine? Christians across vast denominational range can stand together on the first order doctrines and recognize each other as authentic Christians, right? You hold to the gospel, amen. You're a brother or sister in Christ. While we understand that the existence of second order disagreements prevents the closeness of fellowship we would otherwise enjoy. A church either will recognize infant baptism or it won't. That choice immediately creates a second order conflict with those who take the other position by conviction what they see in the scriptures, what they interpret. Many of those most heated disagreements among serious believers take place at the second order level. For these issues frame our understanding of the church and its ordering by the word of God. So there you see baptism. And we have a conflict between infant baptism and believer's baptism. Right This Sunday in Life Group, we're going to look at uh, the, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And when the Ethiopian eunuch repents of his sin, believes on the gospel, he looks out, and what does he see? There is much water. What is to stop me from being baptized? You know what he's planning on doing? Getting dunked. <laughs> now, I can totally respect where a Presbyterian brother or sister in Christ might come to say, all right, I, I see that, but I, I think that Baptism is more of the, the continuation of the idea of circumcision in the Old Covenant. That's the New Covenant version. So whole households can be, be baptized, and we're not going to dunk a baby. We're going to sprinkle water on it. And I would say, okay, I respect that understanding, but I disagree. And that's okay. You need to hear me say that. That is okay. That I convictionally land someone somewhere different than a brother or sister in Christ who is looking at the same Bible and trying to interpret it rightly. That's okay. That's okay. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. Uh, there's a couple different ideas of who can take the Lord's Supper. There's some churches who have uh, open communion that say, anybody and everybody, come on. And there's some who say, well, in order to remember what Christ has done through the elements, I think you need to understand who Jesus is and what he's done, and that, that actually bears some weight in your soul. So I think you need to be saved before you take communion. In fact, I think you probably need to be baptized before you take communion because that's the initiating ordinance. You, and then Lord's Supper is continual. So that's close communion. And then you have closed communion, which says, no, you have to be a member of our church if you're going to take the Lord's Supper with us. Different churches land different places. And they're all coming to God's word to figure it out. Then you have gender roles. Whether or not a church will ordain a woman for the pastoral ministry. And that's where churches kind of divide up on 2 Timothy 3, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, we've already benefited from his writings as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. But when you look at the context, what's right after that? It's the qualifications of an overseer. What's an overseer? It's a pastor. So Paul's saying that a woman doesn't need to be the the day-in, day-out pastor of a church. He's prohibiting that, but he doesn't prohibit the other parts of you know, what women can do to serve the church. There's different gender roles. People differ in the church on that. And then polity, that leads into polity. You recognize that word kind of looks like politics. It's, it's about how is the church governed? Who has leadership in the church? Who makes decisions in the church? Who rules the church? 
Well, that differences from church to church. You have some pastors who make all the decisions. You have some churches who rally together as a congregation to vote on an important decision. You have different ideas of what that looks like in the church. And it's okay to differ on these things. Then you have, um, sorry, before that, just as much as this helps us with whether or not we are members of a church, it actually helps a whole lot in how you date. There could be something that somebody believes that you just don't line up on. And you want to know, all right, where do we need to part ways? Or where do we need to be encouraged to, to grow a little bit, right? First date question is probably not, hey, do you believe women should be pastors? No. First date question is, hey, tell me about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Tell me what that looks like. Second date question is like, so where do you go to church? What's that like? Can I, can I come? Can I come visit? See how that person interacts with the body of believers there. And you'll find out real quick, it's like, ah, you know, I don't know if something's lining up here. And you just need to gauge whether or not that person can budge. And then decide for yourself, do I want to budge? And then when you see that neither of you are going to budge, well, then it's a hard conversation worth having. Because there's no point in just continuing down this road knowing that there's just going to be this conflict. If you can't be members of the same church, do you really want to be married to this person? And again, use discernment, use wisdom in this. Now, I don't have to agree on everything, but there's some things that primary, for sure. Secondary, got to test it out. And then that brings us to tertiary, third order issues. These are doctrines over which Christians may disagree and remain in close fellowship even within local congregations. Christians may find themselves in disagreement over any number of issues related to the interpretation of difficult texts or the understanding of matters of common disagreement. Nevertheless, standing together on issues of more important and urgent doctrines. Believers are able to accept one another without compromise when third-order issues are in question. So what are some of these? Well, you see there at the top... Have you read through Revelation? Do you have it figured out? That was the last book of the Bible I ever read because I was so intimidated by it. Millennial views. What do you believe about the millennial reign of Christ? Right? There's some people who say, all right, we're, we're not there yet. But one day Jesus is going to come. He's going to rapture us up. Great tribulation is going to happen. We're going to come back and he's going to assert his th literal thousand year reign. Okay, well, that's one thought. Then you have the post-millennial uh, idea that we're already in the millennial reign of Christ. Okay, I think experience says otherwise, but sure, okay, that's, that's open for debate. And then you have all millennialists where it's just symbolic, like there is no millennial reign of Christ. It's just, just like Jesus is a literal lion or a lamb, it's symbolic. Okay, different interpretations. Age of the earth. It all depends on how do you interpret this one little Hebrew word, yom, day. Is it literal or is it also used as age, as in the age of Abraham, an un, you know, undefined amount of time? So how old is the earth? Is it, you know, was it literal six days? Was it billions of years? Open to interpretation with that little word. Sign gifts, gift of tongues. Gift of prophecy, miracles. As long as they're in order with 1 Corinthians, right? We're, we're trying to figure this out. 
what is tongues in the Bible? There's a couple different debates on what that could be. And then you have just general difficult texts. Angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, was it the pre-incarnate Jesus or was it just an angel? I say just an angel. He did some pretty cool stuff. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Ephesians 1. Hebrews 6. Some tough texts out there. Do you know for sure what they mean? Some of them are open for debate, and this is tertiary. These are difficult. And so we're generous. We're generous on these. This helps us gauge where other Christians may be making a bigger deal of something than it needs to be, as well as making a small matter of something that should be a bigger deal. Uh, I have this quote from J.C. Ryle. I really like it, and then I'm going to kind of explain it. He says, Since Satan cannot destroy the gospel, he has too often neutralized its usefulness by addition, subtraction, or substitution. He'll add to the gospel, which is no longer the gospel. He'll take away from the gospel, which is no longer the gospel. He'll substitute the gospel with something else, no longer the gospel. That is how our enemy works. He couldn't defeat Jesus. So he's trying to frustrate the work in the midst of our day and age right now. So what does that look like? Well, um, I was talking to, to Ann at breakfast this morning. I read in my quality time with the Lord, I read Psalm 37, and in that is verse 25, where the psalmist says, I have been young and I have been old, and I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his children begging for bread. That's a beautiful promise. And I, I lived in that. I want, I, want to be, I want to pursue the righteousness that Jesus has purchased for me in the gospel. And I want to live that out as a response. I want to keep his commands out of a love for him. Hopefully one day we have a, a big family, children of our own, and that I will see that they are fed and see that promise lived out. Now, one could label that that is prosperous. But if you take that kind of on the edges interpretation and bring that to primary where the gospel is to be prosperous, what have I done? I've made it the prosperity gospel. Where if you believe in God, he'll give you every one of your desires, including that shiny new Escalade. That's not the gospel. That's something different. Something's been added in. A true mark of uh, a mark of true theological liberalism. I'm using liberalism in that sense, not political, but theological. What do they believe about the Bible? There's a lot of progressive Christians or liberal Christians today who do not believe this is the word of God, who like to pick and choose what they can out of here and discard the rest. What does that look like? Well, a true mark of theological liberalism is the refusal to admit the first order theological issues even exist. They take the gospel, the Trinity, and the Bible, and they bring it out to the third level. They say, ah, it's just one way to be saved, or everybody's going to be saved. And that's horrendous. It takes away the urgency of taking the gospel to your neighborhood and the ends of the earth. It takes away the life of fruitfulness that the gospel gives every person who would repent and believe. It gives away... It discards the sufficiency of Scripture to deal with our issues, our sin. 
Liberals treat first-order doctrines as if they are merely third-order in importance, and doctrinal ambiguity is the inevitable result. And then, on the other hand, fundamentalism tends toward an opposite error. The misjudgment of true fundamentalism is the belief that all disagreements concern first-order doctrines. Thus, third-order issues are raised to a first-order importance, and Christians are wrongly and harmfully divided. What happens when you make your church all about being a premillennial church? You've taken a third-tier issue and made it primary. You've thrown it in. Yes, the return of Christ is essential to the gospel, but when you say it's got to be this way, I don't think it does. I think you're harmfully dividing the church on that. That's just one example. Which then brings us to something else. So we have the theological triage. Now I want to introduce and and kind of combine a little bit matters of conscience. Matters of conscience. All right, pastor, that's helpful, but I see people in the church dividing over other stuff. Not really doctrinal stuff, but more preference or weird rules. What you're noticing is that people have different God-given consciences. And so here are some examples. Bible translations, worship styles, suitable clothing, alcohol, stance on alcohol, tattoos, Harry Potter, SpongeBob. Those are the things uh, back when I was growing up that I saw disputes about in the church. Political affiliation, pacifism, beard length. These are often matters of conscience, so we would be helped with a definition here. What do we mean by conscience? Well, here's a definition for conscience. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's your inner sense of right and wrong that judges everything you've done and are considering of doing. Conscience is black or white. It doesn't do gray very well. Your conscience is for you and you only. It is personal. It is your conscience. It is intended for you and not for someone else. In fact, no two people have the exact same conscience. If everyone had the same conscience, we wouldn't need passages in Scripture. And I would encourage you to write these down. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, both of which is the Apostle Paul writing to churches who are trying to figure this out. What do we do with these disputes, namely over food? Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8. We wouldn't need those texts if everybody had the same conscience. Instead, we need good teaching on this. So I want to use this example that I found in a book called uh, Conscience by uh, Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. Uh, They use this example, show this image, the exact image, uh, between two uh, hypothetical Christians. These are uh, consciences of two Christians. We have Anne and we have Bill. The letters in the triangle stand for various rules of right and wrong. Though not identical, Anne and Bill's consciences overlap significantly in what they view as right and wrong. That's the C, D, E, and F, and probably dozens of other rules. In fact, people usually agree more, much more in matters of conscience than they disagree. Notice, however, that Bill's conscience has more rules than Anne's. Write that section down below. 
G-H-I-J-K-L-M-N-N-O. And sees Bill assiduously following these unnecessary rules, such as staying away from movie theaters and never playing video games. And she rolls her eyes and says, what legalism. All the while, Bill is shocked that Anne can ignore these obvious commandments and still call herself a Christian. But Bill isn't the only one being self-righteous here. Anne sees that Bill is completely oblivious to rule B and says to a friend, did you know that Bill buys non-fair trade coffee? Doesn't he care about downtrodden workers in South America? What I want you to see from this is that differences in conscience cause a significant percentage of conflicts in any church. If you're going to disagree with someone, most of the time it's not going to be over doctrine. It's going to be over these other things that usually usurp anything having to do with doctrinal stuff. This is the stuff that we're engaging in right alongside each other and having some kind of problems with, making sense in our own head. So what do we do? Well, we need to realize that no one's conscience is perfectly uh, matching of God's will. We all tend to assume that our conscience standards line up with God's will, but we see on this diagram that's, that's not the case. If we return to our example of Anne and Bill, we see that it turns out that neither Anne nor Bill's conscience perfectly matches God's will. Anne needs to realize that buying non-fair trade coffee, rule B, turns out not to be a sin before God. And Bill needs to understand that rules H-I-J-K-M-N-N-O, including going to the theater and playing video games, these are not inherent sins in God's sight. Now, can they be? Sure, what's the movie? Can, can it be? What's the video game? However, Anne better be thinking a whole lot more about rule G, since God cares about it on the far side over there. And notice that Bill is wrong to omit rule A from his conscience. And they're both off about rule P, which doesn't show up on either of their radars, but God thinks it should. Here's what I need you to see. As we come to understand God's revealed will more and more, as we learn from God's word, we will have opportunities to add rules to our conscience that God's word clearly teaches. And we weed out the rules that God's word treats as optional. It will take a lifetime to do this. But we're encouraged in that we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of our triune God living and dwelling within us. We have God's word. It is God breathed and it is sufficient. And this is where it goes back to theological triage. You have the church. You have other people who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit who also have access to God's word and probably a greater knowledge of it in some areas. And they get to come alongside you in life to teach you what these rules may be, to see your conscience of what is right and what is wrong develop over time as you see it play out in the decisions that you make every single day. We can be encouraged. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Bible. We have the church. Right? If we concentrate on the primary doctrine, the secondary doctrine, and kind of generously open our hands towards the, the third doctrine, tertiary doctrine, 
then we can navigate these conscience differences that have most to do with the conflict in the church. And that brings me to 1 Corinthians 8. I referenced it earlier. I actually preached it about this time last year. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul uh, mentions stronger and weaker consciences. Uh, it's this dispute about food. Um, food is being offered uh, to idols in the town. And then they, they take the, the, the food from the animals that, and they, like, they sell it at the temple. And Christians write to Paul and say, Hey, Paul, we have this issue uh, in Corinth. Uh, we don't know whether or not we can eat this, this food, this meat, uh, that is being offered up to idols and then sold uh, right next to the temples. And Paul basically says, You know, idols aren't real. Right? I understand that you know, it's being worshipped to this idea of, of who a god may be, but that's not, we know that that's not a real god. So I, I, wouldn't, I don't necessarily, I can't prohibit that you, I, I think you can eat the meat. But then he, he, he goes a step further, and this is in verse 13. He says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. What's he doing there? He's doing what's very uncommon these days. It's, it doesn't come automatically to us. It's not very natural to us. He is forfeiting his rights for the good of another. He has the liberty to do it, but he's choosing not to. We are so focused on freedom that we don't even consider that as a viable option. But it is. In fact, it's a very loving option to sacrifice something you can have for the sake of someone with maybe a weaker conscience? It's very loving. In fact, my main point from that sermon was this. We must balance our biblical knowledge with sacrificial love as we look to keep each other's conscience clear. You know these idols are meaningless. Yet, you balance that knowledge with sacrificial love. What's it going to cause your brother to do? Is it going to cause him to stumble? And we're trying to watch out for one another because we know we have an enemy who's coming against us who's looking for any way to put a wedge in between us as believers. And this is a pointless way. Sacrifice it out of love. And I would say that whether we are trying to assess what we believe or evaluate each other's conscience, love is the answer. It's always the answer. We speak the truth in love and we sacrifice our liberties in love. And I'm not advocating for compromise here. Stand firm on your doctrinal beliefs and be prepared to give a defense for them in a civil discussion with another Christian. And obey your conscience and the God of your conscience. We practice these two things best by living out the greatest commandment. Uh, there was a man who came to Jesus one day. He said, teacher, you know the law. What is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. How do we handle Christian differences? With love. 
Love for God, love for neighbor. We stand firm in our beliefs out of a love for God. We speak doctrinal truth in love towards our neighbor. We obey our conscience out of a love for God. We sacrifice our liberties out of a love to keep another Christian's conscience clear. Do you see it? Love is essential to experiencing unity amidst Christian diversity. That's our main point for the night. Love is essential to experiencing biblical unity amidst Christian diversity. Ephesians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is talking about the wisdom of God. He's talking about the mystery of the gospel, how God could take both Jew and Gentile, give them good news, and both of them receive it. You know, Jews, old covenant people of God who have been looking forward to the Messiah, and then Gentiles who don't have a clue about what that stuff's about. Yet the good news applies to both. It's a mystery. But it's a mystery that Paul says that as they receive it and they come together, that they assemble together and they worship this God, what what it does is it shows the wisdom of God in the heavenly places. I want you to think about it. I don't reflect on it very often. But in the spiritual realm, we are joined by other creation. Spiritual beings who worship the same God we do. Who love to to gather just like we do to worship God because that's how they were eternally designed. And they view our coming together and being united in the gospel. And they see the wisdom of God and praise him for it. It's beautiful. And I know we've talked a lot about differences, divisions, but all of that is leading to one day being in the new heavens and the new earth. At what's called the great banquet, where everybody takes of the Lord's Supper because we're all present with him all those who have repented of their sins and believe savingly upon the gospel. That we will join with all of the spiritual realm, dine with our Lord and Savior, worshiping him, and every voice will utter praise to the Lamb of God. That's what we look forward to. We get to experience some of that here and now in this day and age, but we're looking forward we're looking forward to what the gospel has been pointing us to this entire time, being present with our God eternally, joyfully, delightfully, righteously. Do you crave it? Do you groan for it? All of creation is groaning, longing for that day. Do you join in that? Maybe some of you don't know the gospel. It's good news. You want to join the great banquet? We'll see who believed the gospel and who didn't that day. I hope you would believe the gospel, that you would believe on the gospel facts with the gospel truth, that Jesus lived the life you could not live, died the death you deserve, and was raised from the grave to welcome you into eternal, abundant life.
that if you would repent of your sin, put your trust in him, you would be saved. The power of God unto salvation to those who believe.